Hello, everyone, and welcome to Headwise, the podcast and videocast of the National Headache Foundation. I'm Dr. Lindsay Weitzel. I'm the founder of Migraine Nation, and I have a history of chronic and daily migraine that began at the age of four. Today is our regularly scheduled headache news episode with headache specialist and pharmacist, Dr. Tim Smith. Hi, Dr. Smith. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for being here. We love having you. We learn so much every time. Dr. Smith is a regular on our show because of his extensive experience in migraine clinical trials as the CEO of Study Metrics Research. Dr. Smith is also a board member of the National Headache Foundation. We like to do this news episode regularly because we like to bring you the latest headache and migraine-related scientific and medical publications, FDA approvals, and news. So we have a lot to tell you today. We have had a lot of announcements in the last month. We are going to start with a brand new medication announcement that just came out this week. The FDA has approved a new route of administration for one of our triptan medications, Rizotriptan. Dr. Smith, can you tell us about this exciting news? Sure. This uh, new product is, uh, we say it's a new route of administration. It's actually the same route of administration, but in a different dosage form, technically speaking. And what it is, is, uh, is sort of a, what uh, they call this technology, Rizofilm. It's a, it's a basically a, a very thin film uh, dissolving um, a dissolving thin film that releases 10 milligrams of rizotriptan. So it's the same dose that's in uh, Maxalt or Maxalt MLT, uh, but it dissolves right on the tongue and the patient can uh, dissolve it and swallow it. Dissolves in less than two minutes. The patient could swallow it right on down and they don't have to take water with it. So that's that's the big the big new development in rizotriptan. Okay. So is this is the idea behind this? that we might be either too nauseous to take a pill or is it that it works quicker? Uh, really, it's uh, it's about the nausea, I think. Uh, they We didn't see any data from what was released uh, to suggest that there's a more rapid onset of action. It could be, but uh, the fact of the matter is that just hasn't been, if it's been studied, it hasn't been reported yet. So um all we can say right now is that it, uh, it 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 met the equivalent standards for the other marketed Maxalt products or, or other Rizotriptan products, I should say. Okay. All right. So that is exciting for those of us, and I am one, who get a lot of nausea or maybe are vomiting when we're trying to find a medication that's going to help us. So this is good news. Um do we yet, and I don't know the answer to this, do we have any indication when it's going to actually be available to us? Yes, I'm not I'm not aware. I would assume okay. it's summer, but uh, you know, it does take uh, take a few months to to get into production and with the supply chain issues that we have in the modern times, you know, sometimes it takes a little <laughs> bit of time, but I would expect right. uh, probably I didn't see anything in the press announcement when that would be, but uh, I would assume by summertime. Okay, great. So believe it or not, our second topic is also a medication announcement that occurred this month. The FDA added an additional approval to a medication that is already avail available to us, excuse me, which is Culipta or a Toge pant, which 
was approved for prevention of episodic migraine in adults. So what is it that the FDA has approved now related to this medicine? And so now there is approval for use in patients with chronic migraine. And as our audience knows, uh, these are people who have uh, 15 or more uh, headache days per month, predominantly migraine in nature. And uh, the Culepta had been approved for the 14 or fewer, uh, but they released uh, data and the FDA has reviewed it and added the uh, chronic indication to the pad, uh, product label. So this should make it easier and better for uh, patients to be able to uh, get this covered by insurance, for example, now that there is that indication um, available. Okay. Do we know how effective it is for people with chronic migraine? Well, it looks it looks uh, pretty pretty darn good. Uh, the average number of migraine days for or headache days for the participants in the study was 19. So that's 19 out of 28 days per month. Uh, you know, these are a lot of migraine days. And mm -hmm. uh, the daily use of 60 milligrams of uh, Culepta or Atojapant uh, cut more than seven days uh, out of that, uh, out of those 19 days. So it didn't abolish them, uh, but uh, that's a pretty good reduction and, and is sort of comparable uh, to what we see with the use of the, you know, monoclonals and other preventives. Uh, maybe even better than some. So it's probably not fair to compare them head to head uh, or uh, side by side since they weren't studied right. head to head. But, you know, that's what we do. We look at the data and we know what we know and we and we make conclusions based on that. So it's a, it's a good result. Uh, over 40% of people had a 50% reduction in, in their migraine days. And that's that's a really good number for chronic migraine. Okay. And I think that that's probably the question on everyone's mind. And I think you answered it. We don't really have a head-to-head -head comparison at this time between Culepta and any of the monoclonal antibodies, do we? That's right. Okay. All right. So, uh, and interestingly, our third announcement is also a medication update this month. Uh, many people have heard that in March, a CGRP medication in the form of a nose spray was approved by the FDA for the acute treatment of migraine. What can you tell us about this one? I'm being cryptic. I didn't say the name. <laughs> That's right. I don't know why you didn't. <laughs> it's, it's the, the generic name is uh, Zavagepan. And uh -huh. uh, I think the brand name is pronounced Zavspret. <laughs> that is why I didn't say the name. <laughs> It could be a French pronunciation and it could be Zepspread <laughs> or something like that. But anyway, yeah. spread is what it looks like. And uh, uh, this is uh, FDA approved, not launched yet. This is the fourth uh, GPANT, we call them CGRP, small molecular weight uh, therapeutics. Um, and everybody's familiar with Ubralvi. And we just talked about Culepta. And the other one is the Nurtec brand of uh, Remegipant. And this is Zavagepant. And uh, so it's been marketed or will be, it's been approved for marketing uh, by the FDA and it's a 10 milligram nasal spray dose, which is the, looks like the best dose uh, from the, from the trials that have been done. Mm -hmm. And uh, the manufacturer is saying this one will be on pharmacy shelves by July. Oh, wow. Okay. Talking about. Yeah. So, so very close um, nasal sprays. Um, Basically, it gives you a non-oral route. Um, if you think about non-oral routes, there are injections, there are pills, there's orally dissolving 
dissolving tablets, and then the nasal spray version or the general ways. There can, you know, there's some other ways that medicines can be administered, but these are the the main ones that we do. And and this is there are a couple of marketed migraine nasal sprays that we're aware of, um, mm-hmm. Zomic and and uh, Imitrex and other brands and of uh, Sumatriptan. And then there are the DHE, you know, products like Migranol and and uh, Tradesa and others that have been marketed. So this represents the first G-Pant to be delivered in a non-oral route for our patients to take. Okay. So do, first of all, do we know how effective it is? Well, it does, uh, does, they met all of their primary endpoints and most of their secondary endpoints. So patients do get relief. It's statistically significant. Their two-hour pain freedom rate uh, was was significant, and mm-hmm. uh, that's what uh, the main thing that gets uh, approved. And then also the um, uh, associated symptoms. You know, we measure those now: the the light noise sensitivity uh, and the nausea. You know, issues get measured. The most bothersome symptom we refer to it as. So it met met those primary endpoints. I think the thing that people are most excited about is uh, they do have some some data that shows uh, statistical significance in a, in a measurement of pain relief, migraine pain relief at 15 minutes. So that's wow. you know quite an accomplishment to show a statistical relevance at that time point uh, on, on one of the endpoints that patients care a lot about because yeah. we have that in a lot of products. Okay, well, thank you. My next question was gonna be, how quickly does it work? And 15 minutes is an exciting number. For those of us who experience quite a bit of pain as one of our migraine symptoms, um, do we know if we uh, can use this medication if we are all, excuse me, already using a CGRP medication for migraine prevention? Right. So layering it on top of a preventive CGRP blocker. So you'd be two mm-hmm. different uh, CGRP blockers together. And the answer to that question is, we don't know any reason why not, uh, why they shouldn't be. The safety seems to be there, but we don't have any real uh, efficacy trials showing, uh, you know, what the effectiveness is when they're layered on, layered on top of one another. Um, a lot of people make uh, note of the fact that these small molecular weight uh, drugs like the G-Pants uh, might have, uh, from a, a, a pharmacologic effect, they may get into nooks and crannies where there may be receptors uh, in the in the brain and uh, where the monoclonal antibodies are too big to fit. And so mm-hmm. there's a theoretical um, expectation that there may be some added benefit uh, due to that effect. Um, but uh, the main thing that we do know is that combining CGRP blockers doesn't appear to be uh, have any hazardous effects or or toxic effects for anybody. So uh, it's not contraindicated in the product label. Okay, great. Uh, I have one more question on this topic. If if someone uh, did not respond to the oral GPAT medications, in other words, they didn't work for them, does this mean that this nose spray isn't going to work for them? That's a legit, it's a legitimate question. Um, we uh, don't have any data examples to show, but in theory, if if there's enough transmucosal absorption of the drug, as opposed to uh, perhaps if someone had gastric stasis or nausea 
and the oral pills did, didn't work, weren't getting absorbed very well, you could hypothesize that there may be some advantage to giving it into a nasal spray. We For other nasal spray uh, products, we've always said, you know, these might be ideal for people who um, uh, wake up with a migraine, uh, throw up with a migraine, or give up on a migraine. So, you know, it says wake up, throw up, give up. So if you if it's one you wake up with, we typically think of those as being harder to manage and maybe giving this nasal spray may get that initial uh, rush of medicine into the into the circulation a little faster. And, and, and if it does, then that might turn things off. We know how, how important it is to get, get the jump on one of these things and um, one of these attacks. So there's that. And the, obviously, if you're nauseated, you can't swallow a pill or you can't keep it down or it may not be getting absorbed as well. The nasal spray offers that opportunity. So um, again, questions we don't have full <clears throat> data-driven answers for at this moment, but and my answer would be it'd be worth a try, you know, and I, I wouldn't okay. give up without trying it. Just because you didn't respond to the other dosage forms doesn't mean you shouldn't, you won't to this one. Okay. All right. Our last topic today is about a very interesting article published in the last few weeks in neurology. It looked at circadian features of both cluster headache and migraine. Uh, it even looked into some of the genetic factors behind this topic. Um, so what did this study say about genetics, hormones in the body, circadian rhythm or circadian systems when it came to cluster headache first? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about migraine after that, but let's start with cluster headache because this is exciting because uh, people out there with cluster headache, they don't often get a lot of data and a lot of publications talking about their uh, headache disorder. So what did it say about cluster headache? Well, first of all, this was um, a, uh, a huge meta-analysis done of all the literature on this topic uh, that we have access to, and it was done by a group of researchers that are very um, well-established in this field, especially with these circadian uh, uh, rhythm uh, features, uh, particularly as it pertains to cluster headache, but also with uh, respect to migraine. And uh, basically, they analyzed uh, and distilled data from uh, over 1,500 published studies, and uh, 70 some odd of those studies met the primary criteria for the meta-analysis review. And they found, uh, I think it was 16 different studies that had these genome-wide association studies with them, which looked at uh, genetic abnormalities and genes that code for um, circadian rhythm problems, okay? Mm -hmm. And all these, these core circadian genes or CCGs that is sort of the lingo they use to talk about them. And what we what we see from their paper is that when you look at all of the, it, it gives you a descriptor of, we. everyone knows that uh, uh, cluster headache attacks tend to occur in the middle of the night and that there's a seasonal um uh, predilection for it. That's not always true, but it, uh, I think in the majority of our patients that that is the case. And they mm -hmm. showed from this study that the, the peak time of day for these attacks indeed is from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there are going to be some outliers on that, but I think just taken all together, that does confirm what we usually tell patients about uh, these cluster attacks, and they occur mostly at night. 
uh, wake people up from asleep, generally speaking. Right. And then they also showed a, uh, a, a, a circannual uh, rhythm that goes over the course of the year with peaks in the spring and the fall. And we always have suspected that. That's been, uh, you know, general observations and uh, uh, observational data and, and uh, sort of consensus opinion that that's the case. And, and this meta-analysis confirms that that's the case. And then there are a couple of key um, uh, circadian genes, these core circadian genes that are definitely associated with cluster. Uh, and uh, from a serum hormone standpoint, they also uh, confirm that uh, you know, our cluster patients are more likely to be low on melatonin and high on uh, cortisol. Uh, mm-hmm. So and we know that those two hormones are distinctly uh, involved uh, with um, day-night cycles, you know, and, and those kinds of things. We know the melatonin is associated with sleep and there are many, many marketed products that enhance melatonin or provide melatonin as a sleep aid. Um, mm-hmm. And there are even melatonin receptor uh, stimulators that are prescription drugs that are FDA approved. And so uh, I think this, what this paper does for me is it gives a, a really good uh, confirmation of all of those features of, of cluster attacks when they occur, uh, what they're associated with these day-night rhythm uh, disturbances, and that there are uh, gene markers that uh, that uh, are associated with them. And so um, I won't bother people with the names of the genes, but uh, there there are some a couple of important ones uh, that have been associated with it. So uh, very okay, fascinating work. Okay, so that's awesome for our um, audience with cluster headache because I get super excited when there's anything we can say data-wise, et cetera, to them because there's so much less data coming out on cluster headache than there is on migraine. Um, Now we're moving on to migraine. What did this interesting study show when it comes to genetics, hormones, and the body's circadian system for people with migraine? So it was uh, very interesting. Uh, the, sh- the study showed that about half of the migraine patients, uh, about 50%, have a circadian pattern to their attacks. And uh, what might be surprising to some people is that uh, the attack frequency seems to hit a trough during the nighttime hours from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. That was uh, as opposed to a-, a peak for the cluster headache attacks. There was this trough for the uh, migraine uh, population. Uh, between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. And a lot of times we think about those uh, wake-up headaches that are so hard to treat. And it, as it turns out, for half the people, that's uh, it's not as common. It may be severe, but uh, but they're, they appear to, if there's a, a day-night pattern for people, it tends to be more during the daytime and a trough during the nighttime hours up till 7 a.m. Um, the other things that were noted was that uh, there also appears to be a circannual rhythm for migraine patients. We talked about uh, a peak in the spring and a peak in the fall for the for our cluster uh, patients. And as it turns out for migraine, they, their peak tends to be a broader peak spread out from like April till about October. So the spring uh, through the middle of the summer and then uh, starting to taper in the early fall and uh, with the later fall, winter, and early spring months uh, being less associated with the tags. And then just lastly, there were uh, a couple of these core circadian genes that were identified that do tend to be related to these rhythm changes for migraine mm-hmm. patients. And there are, uh, when they looked at the hormone levels, um, 
there is a significant uh, lowering of melatonin levels in um, uh, many migraine patients. So uh, not as much other correlation with uh, cortisol uh, and other uh, hormones, but with the melatonin uh, being being low, that was also associated with our migraine population. So, you know, kind of some similarities in that there are day-night and, and year-long rhythm changes. There, there's a distinct difference between the migraine folks and, and cluster patients, but uh, but interesting that there is a connection uh, that is uh, significant. Okay. So something you said I found so interesting, and I want to clarify to see if if I understood it right. Um, so, so many of us, and I'm one of them, spring is horrible for me. I'm miserable, um, pain, the migraine symptoms are way worse than the rest of the time of year. And I think many of us blame it on barometric pressure changes. Maybe some people, allergies are flaring things up or something. Is it possible that we might have a circadian rhythm throughout the year, some tendencies genetically where uh, internally we have sort of a clock that is making things worse that time of year? Is that what you're saying it could be a possibility? I think, uh, like all things related to migraine, it's multifactorial. But what this analysis suggests is there may be a, a genetic link that uh, people have. It may be more than just storms or pollen levels or, you know, day-night cycles changing with setting the clocks forward and all those sorts of things in the spring. Uh, there, If you take an analysis that looks at people across the spectrum like that and this, uh, this, uh, these clock genes or uh, circadian uh, genes uh, are clearly are associated with these with people that have this rhythm uh, change. Then that would suggest there there can be a, a genetic contributor that uh, maybe we might inherit. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Fascinating. I don't think we have all the answers, but it does uh, point us in a new direction for thinking about this and for future research. I think that's going to be very important. All right, that's so interesting. I think there's a lot of people out there that might just find that something new that we had never thought of. Um, So that is all we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. It is always fascinating when you're on. We always learn new things. Thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode of Headwise. And please join us for our next episode. Bye-bye.